to episode of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com, and for information about the podcast as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. I met this week's guest in the internet sense of the word at least, as I was trawling, that's T-R-A-W-L-I-N-G, rather than T-R-O-L-L-I-N-G, although I must confess to having done a little of the latter on a My Little Pony fanfiction site, but uh, anyway, I was uh, looking for the picture of the fighter attacking the ice hockey game I spoke about with Donald in episode 10, and I subsequently discovered the, the name of that article was Modern Monsters from Dragon Number 57, and that by chance I had had the good fortune to connect with a grognard of the first degree and founder of Grognardia Games itself. James Melizhevsky. James is a writer and designer who's written for all the big names, including Atlas Games, Game Designers Workshop, Green Ronin, Wizards of the Coast, White Wolf, GURPS, and Traveller, as well as running Grognardia Games, from which he publishes his Thousand Sons line of games. So without further ado, hi James, how's it going? Not too badly, thanks for having me. Well, it's an honour to have you on the show here, being such an esteemed freelancer. I'm looking forward to getting a, um, a rebuttal, if you like, of my long-standing... Um, aversion to sci-fi games um, but for people that aren't familiar with your work although I suspect that that's a, uh, only a few people um, how long have you been a role player? Gee uh, let's see I began role playing in the very end of 1979 so that's going to be 33 years this year you must have been in right from the very start almost well not quite the very start but uh, close to it I knew people who were there at the very start but at, at, uh, if you want to put it that way I guess and so how did you get started, and uh, what, what did you play first? The funny thing is, I got started uh, quite by accident. Um, August of 1979 was when the famous uh, steam tunnel incident happened, um, where a university student in Michigan disappeared, and it was believed that he had uh, gone in there as a result of... Uh, mistaking his role-playing as reality. And, of course, it turned out not to be true, but it was all over the newspapers at the time. And my father was quite interested in this. And he'd never heard of this game, Dungeons & Dragons. It was a strange thing in 1979. No one really knew anything about it. And uh, so he was always talking about it. And my mother mistook his talking about it for actual interest in the game. (laughs) So uh, she bought him a copy of the basic set that existed at that time. It's the... um, uh, the set that was edited by uh, uh, Dr. Eric Holmes um, has a picture of a dragon and knights and a wizard on the front of it right. and gave it, gave it to him. Uh, and his response was, well, what am I going to do with this? I, I, I'm, you know, this is a game. I'm not interested in playing it. So it sat up in the closet, uh, in the linen closet on the second floor of my parents' house for several months. And then close to Christmas that year, a friend of mine uh, received a uh, a game called Dungeon. It's a board game that TSR published, right. um, and it was a very sort of simplified dungeon crawl uh, game. And we thought it was a blast. We loved it. And when I saw it, it looked familiar to me, like I'd seen something like it before. And I remembered this game that I had seen sitting around upstairs in the linen closet. So I pulled it out and opened it up. First time it had been done, and I was utterly baffled by it. I had no idea what to do with it, but I took it to my friends, and over Christmas break when we were home we tried to puzzle it out and figure out what it was and that's how we started playing we didn't know what we were doing at all we sort of still thought it was kind of a 
board game-ish thing. We were wondering where the board was and trying to figure it out. And one of my friends, he had an older brother who was in high school, and he knew Dungeons & Dragons. He had been playing for some time. After laughing at us and and, and making fun, he told us the right way to do it, and that's how it happened. We started playing that. Sounds like you uh, may also have had some uh, contact with, you know, there was the steam tunnel incident and, and also perhaps latterly uh, there was the, 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 the boy that uh, shot himself with a shotgun or something and, then the, and uh, there were a number of suicides that were attributed to role playing in those early days and there was that dreadful 60 Minutes documentary. Um, yes. And, and uh, so what was your contact with that whole, I mean, aside from your father's interest in that initial steam tunnel story, what uh, contact did you have with role-playing, at least in a negative sense? Was it pretty accepting where you were from, or did you come up against that? I never came up against that at all. Um, honestly, um, everyone thought it was great, um, because really, it spent. we spent a lot of time in people's houses, sitting around the table, imagining things together. Uh, we weren't off wandering somewhere where no one knew where we were. We spent a lot of time reading books about medieval history, learning uh, foreign languages so that we could make clues and, and, and uh, puzzles for one another to figure out. It was a very positive thing. We, I mean, I remember reading about those things and seeing them on television, but I was always baffled because it was completely unlike any experience that my friends and I had had. Right. It's, it's a little bit strange, um, not necessarily hear you say that particularly, but just in general, although there was that large media beat-up about um, role-playing, I haven't actually encountered, except for myself, anybody who's actually come up against somebody who has a, an aversion to it. And my feeling is that uh, it was just a really good sensational type uh, news story, but there was there were very few people um, that were actually interested in like actually you know causing the games to cease to exist and as a as a parent um i would have thought that parents would have been rejoicing at this idea of their kids not going out and listening to you know punk rock and uh you know and smoking and drinking and stuff like that and staying in the house and reading books you know that seems like an ideal scenario but uh the impression that i got because i grew up in new zealand you know of in the in the media that came in from america was that everybody thought that it was dreadful and you were uh, you know really um, living on the fringes if you were, you were playing it. That sounds like it's quite the opposite. That was my experience anyway. I'm sure there were some people that may have run into trouble, but I never had any problem with it. Right, so you started off with that uh, dungeon, and then you, you got into the basic Dungeons & Dragons, and then what did you play from there? Well, we played D&D for a good long while. Um, that was the primary game, but of course, once we started playing that, all these things, they would come with catalogs from TSR, and we'd realize, oh, look, they make other games. And so we we went through everything. We played Gamma World and Boot Hill and Gangbusters, Star Frontiers, but the big ones that we played after D&D was Traveler. That was sort of my... That were our other game that we played a great deal. And I always say that, uh, you know, D&D... Uh, is the game that I've probably played the most, but Traveler's the game that I love. It's the one I've always loved. Right. Well, you'll be interested to hear this story then, because um, regular listeners will have heard the story before, so I'll uh, I'll abridge it somewhat and may edit some out afterward. But um, the first experience that I had with role-playing was actually Traveler. You know, usually people come into contact with Dungeons & Dragons, but the first contact I had was with Traveler, and a friend of mine's brother was uh, was right into it, and he had the, the, the books, and he was looking for people to play with him, as older brothers generally are. They get the younger brothers to play, and, and it turns out... Um, his younger brother's friend, which was me. So he was very into it, and uh, 
I sat down and, and spent what, it, to me at least at the time, seemed like a very, very long time putting together a, a character. And, and I was just sort of, sort of following along, but I was getting really re- more and more excited as time went by because I'd seen Star Wars and, and uh, Battlestar Galactica and, and, and shows like that. And so I was getting really excited to play. And then uh, you can probably guess what, what happened next. I was getting right towards the end of character generation, and then my, uh, and then my character died, and that was, the, uh, <laughs> that, was the, that was the end of it for me. And it was another few years before I actually got into uh, Dungeons and Dragons um, after playing a few of those fighting fantasy type books. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, we're uh, coming from complete opposite ends of the uh, scale here. And I think I've actually been scarred for, for life by that experience because I've never really picked up a, uh, a sci-fi game um, since then, so I'm, I'm really. Uh, this one, I'm really excited to have you on the on the show today. So hopefully, I can uh, get over that, and you can uh, sell me on some of the virtues of uh, playing role playing games in space. Well, I'll try. So, uh, so after uh, after Traveller, what did you uh, play? Oh my goodness! You know, the thing is, I think we played at some point almost everything. It's right. hard for me to remember. The games that were the big ones for us were Traveller, D and D. I know we played Champions. Gamma World was a big one for us as well. Um, but those were the, the primary games. It was really D&D ruled everything for us for a very, very long time. And when we wanted to do something that was uh, science fictional, Traveler was our default that we would go to. Right. And, and with a number of guests um, prior to, to you, I've, I spoke about this idea of having a, you know, much like if you uh, meet a girl or a boy or, or, or whoever, um, that's sort of a perfect fit for your soulmate, if you will. I, my feeling is that gamers also have a, a soulmate, a game that just sort of fits them, fits them perfectly. And would you characterize Traveller as, as that for you? Most definitely. Most definitely. It, uh, the only thing I would say about Traveller is that uh, it, it may be my sort of role-playing, my gaming soulmate, but uh, she jilts me a lot. In what respect, from the mechanics, or um, because the game, there are a couple of things that happen. But one of the big things is that over the years, um, the company that produced Traveler, or the many companies that have produced Traveler, have yes. done things in order to try to make the game more um, to update it, to make it more contemporary. And every time they would do that, they would turn me off the game. And then a new company would come along; they'd have the game, decide they're going to do it, and I think, okay, I can go back to Traveler. And then they would keep changing things that I found unenjoyable in some way or the other. I also wrote for Traveler for a while, and that experience also resulted in my being a little less than happy with it in the end. But Right, and was that what inspired you to write Thousand Sons? Most definitely, most definitely. Yes. I mean, I Traveler is a great gay game. It is, I, I still love it even now, but in the end, there were a number of aspects of it that continually caused me trouble and made it harder for me to keep playing it. And so Thousand Suns was sort of, it's my sort of uh, ideal version of Traveler, I guess. Um, And so uh, what do you play now? Uh, Right now, I have been playing uh, Labyrinth Lord, which is a retro clone of uh, the 1981 edition of D&D. That seems to be a fairly... uh common idea at the moment you know with us uh generation x or or slightly before um people you know they've gone through and they've you know bought all their old toys back and um you know and and done all of those things that they weren't able to do at that time and and it seems like there's a bit of a movement towards people getting back to those retro uh style games is that something that you've have noticed 
Oh, most definitely. It's a huge thing right now. I mean, even Wizards of the Coast seems to have noticed it because uh, the next edition of Dungeons & Dragons, they are at least talking about looking back to the original versions of the game, the earlier editions for inspiration, which is a big change from what they had done just even a few years ago. Yeah, I was talking with Sean Nittner, episode uh, four, and uh, we were trying to figure, because we'd, we'd read that article and we were talking about it a little bit, and we weren't sure whether they were trying to go from fourth edition, where you know, you're, it was very strictly delineated um, class types, to and when they said we're going to go and try, try go back to the way things were, whether they meant we could, they were going to go back to the, you know, the three point five Dungeons and Dragons, or whether they actually meant they were going all the way back to the first second edition Dungeons and Dragons. And so, from somebody who's more of an insider than certainly I am, um, it sounds like they're going towards that uh, more first second edition feel than than the three point five. Well, at this stage, no one really knows. Um, all they have said for sure is that they have spent time, the designers have spent time playing all the editions of Dungeons & Dragons, going all the way back to the original from 1974, and um, trying to look for commonalities, the sort of threads that unite all the editions. So their goal, as I understand it, is to create a new edition that unites all of them, that would theoretically appeal to fans of every edition, which... That's a pretty impressive uh, goal they set out yeah, for themselves. Yeah, if they can, if they can do it, great, great. That's amazing. I, I'm skeptical, but... Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure how you can reconcile 3.5 uh, with with any of the others. I think that's probably the the least um, least like those because you have a, such a great, uh, such a, a wide variety of skills and things that you can choose that, that the really blurs all those lines that there were between the traditional and even the fourth edition type classes. So I'm not quite sure how they're going to achieve that, but uh, as you say, it'll be interesting to see what they what they come out with next. So I think probably anybody that doesn't uh, know you or know of your, your work has a pretty good idea of uh, where you're coming from and uh, where you're at currently. So my first question is, uh, what's your favorite book or supplement, other than Victoria, of course, or any of the uh, the games that you've written? Gee, uh, my favorite book or supplement? That's a very good question. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, one that goes along with your favorite system or uh, anything, but just something that you really just you just got it and you and you loved everything about it. Well, if you don't use it anymore. Well, actually, now that I think about it, 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 it's funny I didn't come up with it right away. The book that I actually continually read over and over again, even though I'm not actively playing it, is actually the uh, Advanced D&D Dungeon Master's Guide, the first edition one by Gary Gygax. Um, That book is a bizarre collection of things. It's Every time I read it, I come across something that I thought I had, I'm pretty sure I'd never read before. It's all sorts of things in it. The organization's terrible. The uh, the connections between the sections don't are barely there, but it's fascinating. It's just um, filled with all sorts of really remarkable subjects. So I read it all the time. Right, and is that uh, is that subconsciously illustrated in the little uh, the logo you've got for your your company? It's the the guy digging the gem out of the out of the idol's eye from the that that book, right? Well, from the player's handbook, but yes, that's right. Oh, that's player's that's right. Okay, yes, you're right. That's the player's handbook, but yes, most definitely, yes. Uh, I don't AD and D is a little too much for me these days in terms of its complexity. I don't like a game that's as uh, heavy as that, um, but. 
in many ways, it still is the kind of um, gold standard for D and D. And I was when I was a kid. I mean, that was that was real Dungeons and Dragons. That's what all the teenagers played. So you wanted to do that. You didn't want any of this basic stuff. Right. That, was, that was for kids. Yeah. So of course, you prove that you were you were a true man, a real role player by yeah. playing D and D. Right. Um, that uh, that uh, first edition Dungeon Master's Guide, um, I've spoken about it before on the podcast here, and you're perhaps familiar with it, uh, an article that uh, Gary Gygax actually wrote about uh, role-playing and this idea of um, you know, like this character development sort of getting in the way of, of uh, what he intended for the for the game. Am I interpreting that correctly? Like, are you familiar with that article? Um, I'm not sure which one you're thinking about. I may, may know it. Um, what was the... Where did it appear? Was it in Dragon? Yeah, I, I can't even remember where, where it because I only got a hold of it to afterwards. There was a JPEG available on the internet, and I've, and I've linked it in the in the show notes. But his his basic thrust was that, um, well, if, if I can give you a little bit of context here, um, not, one of the things that we talk about on the show here a bit is this idea of you know that you've got sort of two you've got a spectrum in role playing games. At one end, you've got the the tactical. Um, strategy game, the, the game that's only just sort of one step removed from a, from a war game, something like, say, for example, uh, Rollmaster or Twilight 2000, where there are a lot of rules uh, about um, coming up with the resolution for combat type things. And then you've got the other end of the scale where you've got uh, Fiasco and games that are really narrative-driven uh, and there's, a real, there's not really even a, a distinct game master. And then everything falls somewhere on that spectrum. And, and my feeling was, and, and I think probably... Uh, it would be obvious to most people is that, that uh, Gary Gygax sort of came from the, the wargaming background and, and, and uh, your history is probably better than mine but I seem to recall reading something about him and uh, Dave Arneson were uh, uh, sort of had this idea that you know what would it be like if you looked at the adventures of the individual troops rather than the yes. rather than rather than the actual units themselves, and so uh, from from that uh, he developed this idea of, of role playing. But he, uh, my feeling is that on the basis of this article, and I'm sorry I can't give you the the reference here, but he was sort of saying you know this idea of fleshing out these roles is is well and good, but you know my my um, enjoyment comes from the the you know like going through killing the monsters, getting the treasure, and, and devising ways to defeat them, rather than you know developing the uh, the background of any individual character. Yes, as as I understand it, I, I remember a particular article. I mean, Gary was sort of down on what he referred to as amateur thespianism. He didn't think that role play role playing was like acting. Yeah. You he he still seemed to have a great deal of interest in there being a, a strong differentiation between the player and his character. You didn't become your character; you played a character. I mean, but there was still, as you say, there's there is a, a, a distinction between. Them. Them. And it's it comes out of that wargaming background for sure. Um, he would not was not as interested in, as I say, this acting sort of quality where there's a strong identification between player and character. Right. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it's a spectrum, as you say. It's it's one of those things that uh, some people find the game much more enjoyable to really get into their role, and others don't. And I, you know whatever works for you really i mean it's a it's a strange hobby which from whatever spectrum you come whatever end of the spectrum you come at it um and uh you know i i myself i'm not much of a sort of actor type when i play but i do enjoy you know i speak in character when i'm running games or playing characters um i don't talk about you know well my my character does this i say i 
but some people some people don't and i know when i was younger when i first started it was a much more common thing to treat your character almost like a pawn in a game rather than you you know you didn't speak on his behalf except on rare occasions when you were supposed to do so but you know that's that's an outgrowth of 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 miniatures wargaming and things have changed. I mean, it's 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 almost forty years since D and D came out, so right. it's not surprising there will be some development in that. And you know, there's just different different ways to play. Yeah, for sure. That uh, that idea of moving from the third person, like your character as a pawn, to to moving to the first person is uh, would you characterize that as being something that comes from familiarity with the game? You become more and more comfortable with. Uh, uh, yes, yes, I, I think so. I mean. I know when when I began playing, it was it felt much more natural to treat your character as if you were you know a a playing piece, um, and it's a little weird to you know especially if you're playing a character that's quite unlike yourself to speak as if you are that person. It's, it can become uncomfortable, and you know it, it requires a certain amount of trust and um, comfortability with the people with whom you're playing, and then once you have that, it it's quite natural to begin to sort of speak that way. Um, and, you know, but some people never achieve that. I mean, some people never have that. They never really feel that kind of identification or, or comfortability with people they're playing with or their character. And so they, they sort of distance themselves a little bit, but yeah, it, it definitely comes as you, as you gain some experience in playing, I think many people find it easier to do that, but not everyone. No, no, not everybody makes that uh, makes that leap. So, going to the flip side of the coin, there then, um, if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? And this doesn't necessarily mean you think that it's badly written. Uh, it could just be because it's wronged you in some random way, or you know, it's connected with some uh, incident in your past that you'd rather forget about. But something just rubs you the, the wrong way, or you try to avoid for for irrational reasons. Well, ironically, given the book that I said that I liked the most, the one I dislike the most and that I would gladly get rid of if I could was also written by Gary Gygax, and that's Unearthed Arcana, which which came out in 85, I think it was. And it was sort of the preview, I guess, to what Gary's second edition would have been had he remained at TSR. And... It has these incredibly overpowered character classes like the Cavalier, um, absurd. Like it's just, it's very much a the, the he ramped up the power level of the characters a great deal. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that as such. It's just that it felt completely different than the game that had come before. It was a development of the game, I guess. I'm sure that's what he would have said. And things would have changed overall but at the time it felt like this complete change from what we had done um before and it just didn't fit and it caused no end of troubles and i just really dislike that book right saying unearthed darkener actually brings back a memory for me and it sort of makes a link with an idea that I've been working on through these uh, last dozen podcasts or so, and that is uh, it's relatively common for people to uh, say that their least favorite book is uh, a splat book or uh, you know one of those second edition um, supplement type books. And although I couldn't be sure, Unearthed Arcana or Unearthed Arcana is um, the first real book that uh, I can think of that sort of fits into that category, at least that I was familiar with. But at the time that that book came out, I thought it was I thought it was awesome. Oh and, yes, and and the reason 
why, and I, as I say, this sort of links with something I was saying earlier on, is that I think that those splat books and those books that let you, like Might and Magic, and, and the, the things that really let you stat your character out and make them really awesome, tend to appeal to um, younger, a younger audience, like like the, the, the 13, 14, 15-year-olds, the ones that are into the game, they know how it goes, now they want to really try and you know work with that... Uh, that you know that power fantasy that goes along with playing these super powerful characters and and hearing you you say that and uh, and reminding myself of, of what what my feelings were toward it I think probably that's uh, accurate I remember liking the barbarian character and also the uh, also liking the um, the thief acrobat but but absolutely you know that uh, that almost uh, encouragement to power game. That, uh, that that brought out was something that I really really enjoyed at the time, and I, I'm, I'm starting to think that I'm that uh, that is pretty common. Is that those types of books appeal to you know the teenage um, sort of power gamer that exists in uh, in all of us? So that's uh, it's interesting. You should mention that. I had, wouldn't have thought about it if you hadn't. So, is there uh, anything coming out that you're particularly looking forward to? It could even be something that you're developing yourself. Um, at the moment, the thing I'm probably most looking forward to is uh, Goodman Games' Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. It should right. come out very soon. Uh, as I understand it, the um, it's back from the printer, and it's going to be shipped out next week to people who pre-ordered. And I was one of them, so I'm really looking looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, I, I think uh, that that's all part of that retro. Uh, that all that part of that retro movement. So hopefully, it uh, it'll keep it going because. You know, I, I play uh, first edition Dungeons and Dragons from from time to time, and and uh, although I play it considerably differently to the way that I did when I was a teenager, probably um, of course it uh, it's still I still really love it just because it's it's simple and you know it's it just it uh, it's comforting in a way I suppose it's it's just uh, something that uh, you can pick up and you can you can play and there's nothing overly complex about it. Um, and like you say, those rules that came along with Unearthed Arcana and also with the with the Splat books, and none of that stuff's in there. And, That's right. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to that myself. Although I was not uh, didn't have the foresight to uh, to pre-order. So um, if you could be a player or a GM, which would you choose? Well, it's funny you should say that because uh, I have almost always been a GM. Um, since I started, um, you know, I owned the first copy of D and D in our group. So naturally I was the, uh, the GM. Um, so I have played and I enjoy playing, but I think I'm most comfortable with being GM. So I would probably choose that. Uh, it's interesting you should say, um, that you would be a GM because I just wanted to go back to something that you, uh, you said earlier on, which is that you don't, uh, when you're playing a, uh, a character, like when you get the opportunity to play, you don't uh, you fall sort of more towards the Gary Gygax end than the uh, than the fiasco end of uh, of, of playing your uh, characters. At least that was the impression that I got. And I was wondering, as a, a GM um, or a DM or a storyteller, whatever it is that you happen to be running, um, how do you um, go about playing your uh, NPCs? Do you do you play them to the hilt, or do you just go more for the plot? Well, really, it, it varies a great deal. Um, if it's an incidental sort of a character, a minor sort of person, you meet a guard somewhere, a shopkeeper, I don't do much of anything to them. Although sometimes, you know, I'll get a strange inspiration and suddenly a character that had no name and was no one of any consequence that you were just buying a suit of chainmail from becomes 
a real character. And so I'll have a funny sort of way of speaking. They'll have a strange verbal tics or peculiar behaviors or whatever that makes them memorable. Um, and they just, I just run with it. Sometimes that happens. Uh, other times with major, I mean, then they'll have NPCs where it's like, well, this person's important. So I tend to play them more strongly. But again, it, it really, it, it varies a great deal. Um, it, it goes back to that comfortability thing. Sometimes a character just sort of speaks to me and I feel like I know who this person is and then I play them. Other times they're just, they're just a functionary that are doing a particular role in the game. And I just, you know, move on. It's like, Oh, and he tells you to do this or whatever. And then other times it's sort of, you'll start speaking and it's like the character comes to life. So I don't have any natural tendency one way or the other. It's more, I, I let things develop as they will. Right. The idea of uh, characters coming to life is something that I talk about in the in the GMing section of, uh, of Victoria. And I've found over the years, similar to, to yourself, that sometimes a character will just suddenly come to life. And I encourage people that are, that are going to run games, if, you, if that happens, you know, just, just run with it. Because, I mean, there are... You hear about actors born to play certain roles, and you hear about writers talking about it all the time. Characters that they thought were just incidental, um, as they were as they were putting a, an outline for their story together. Suddenly, as they start to write for them, they find that they come to life and and become a real joy to uh, to deal with. Uh, is that something you've experienced uh, a lot, or does it happen only every once in a while? Um, I think it's happened fair, uh, fairly often. Um, I mean, when it does, it's, it is, as you say, it's, it's an amazing thing, a wonderful thing. And I just run with it. And then those are the characters that people will talk about years later. They'll still remember them. Um, but it's a very real experience. I mean, I can't explain how or why it happens, but you'll just, this character will sort of almost, you know, literally come alive and speak through you. It, I mean, it sounds silly to say, but it's, it's a very real experience. And yeah. I, I've done it on a number of occasions and it can change the complexion of, of an adventure or even a whole campaign yeah. because suddenly, you know, a shopkeeper that you meant to be nothing is this real person that people know and care about and you care about. And it's a terrific thing. It's an amazing thing. You can't plan it. And sometimes, you know, I've, I've tried to help it along sometimes and sort of force it, and the result is far worse than something that just spontaneously occurs. So yeah. I've learned as I get older, just let it happen. It'll happen when it does. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah I agree. That's sort of the magic moment for me. When I'm GMing, if I get something like that happen and one of those guys comes to life, you know, like you, the voice comes to you and the, mm-hmm. and, and, like, and the players sort of light up when they're talking. Like it, just, it just feels real for whatever reason, and it's, that's definitely... Uh, if I could pick a role-playing moment that I enjoy the most, it would be you know when a when a character when an NPC comes to life and you and you get to sort of speak through them and be them. It's uh, it's a wonderful wonderful thing. What's the perfect number of people in a role-playing game? Hmm. Well, um, I'm not sure I know a perfect one, but my experience is generally between about four to six players and a game master. Um, so whether that's perfect, I don't know, but it's the one I have most experience with and I find most comfortable. I've played in groups that are basically just me and one other person or games that's like that. And then I remember long ago groups that would have 12, 15 people. Um, this was D&D, you know, in the days when it seemed like everyone was playing D&D. Um, that's a little too much for me. I can say that. I prefer it to be small, but not too small. 
So I would say about, you know, four to six people is usually about best for me, but... Yeah, and it depends as well on the on the type of system. Dungeons and Dragons, if you've got a whole bunch of people running around in the third person, like you say, and they are pawns, then that's the sort of thing that's quite manageable. Though even in that case, I would imagine the combat would take a uh, a really long time. So yeah, I I I tend to fall on the narrative games end, and I find that about three players or four players, if you want to have a a buffer there in case somebody is sick or away for the evening, is is good for me. But yeah, I think that again that uh, that. As you say at the start, there really is no perfect number. It, de- it relies on a whole bunch of different things. But it's, uh, but yeah, depending on the type of game, it can it can vary greatly. So here's one that sort of goes a little bit on what we were talking about before: is should males play females? Should? Well, I don't know about should, but I don't know. If a human being can play an elf or a bug-eyed monster from Mars, I don't see why a man couldn't play a woman. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree. Um, my the the point that I that I raise and re- rebuttal, it's, although it's not necessarily something that that I ascribe to, is um, do, do is there though the requirement for the game master to be somebody who can empathise with uh, females, like somebody who actually can relate to you in a real female way? Because if you if you're playing somebody different. Um, in order to get that mileage out of somebody, you know, in order to get that mileage out of your female character if you're a male, you need either the people that you're playing with or the game master to be able to relate to you in a in a somewhat, you know, somewhat female way. Otherwise, you don't really get that experience, and that negates the the the, the uh, any benefit you get out of being a female if you're playing a male. Now, there may be character classes um, that. Will or certain character backstories or certain game backstories where being a female actually has a real game effect, and I absolutely agree. There's no way of somebody to correctly um, play an elf because it, it doesn't doesn't exist. But um, at least in that instance, the game master will have a an idea of what an elf might be like, and there's not really any way to contradict it. But most people have. Have interacted to a greater or less extent with a female, mm-hmm. and and as a result, you know, are they able to then, you know, bring that to the as the game master able to bring that to the game table? Well, I guess it depends. Again, I find it goes back to that question about uh, player identification. I mean, in some people, uh, when they play, they like a strong identification between the person playing them and uh, the character they are portraying. Um, but if you have a bit of distance, the fact that someone's not female themselves, but playing one, it, it, I mean, I don't think uh, they'll care as much. It's a question, I guess, of, of how much realism, I don't know if that's the word, you want in these sorts of things. Um, I can only say for myself, it's never been a huge issue for the most part, because it's pretty, I found personally, it really is pretty uncommon for male players to play female characters. Uh, It comes up from time to time. I mean, as the game master, of course, you have to play a wide variety of these things, but I don't know. I guess it's never never really, no one's ever complained, let's say, that I've portrayed females in any sort of, uh, not not appropriately, um, in any sort of way, but uh, honestly, it's not a question that comes up all that much for me, but I, I can understand it's, it's being an issue, you know, something that, that others care more about. Hmm, because there are, I have experienced in the past, 
um, role players who are, who are males that always play females. Really? And yeah, yeah. It's and I, I don't. I, I couldn't go so far as to say that it's strange, but to always select being a, a female um, hmm. is, you know, it says it says to me at least that uh, the person is um, uh, is interested in exploring what it might be like to be. Uh, sure. what it might be like to be a female and as Chris was talking about in episode 5 you know, he, uh, one of the things that uh, as a game master and somebody who wasn't, hadn't quite reconciled with being gay, uh, that as a GM, you know, some of the things that he, that he played out in hindsight made perfect sense in terms of uh, what was going on and it helped him to in some respects come to terms with being gay so um, yeah, I don't. I wouldn't go so far as to say that somebody who's playing a female is a no, no, with, a, with a gender issue. But you know, as a as a as a game master, if somebody wants to explore something, you know, and as I say, whether it's being a female or being an elf or being a really nasty bastard when they're uh, when they're generally nice in everyday life, you know, that's that's something that as a game master is sort of incumbent upon you to to facilitate. You know, if a player wants to take a game in a, in a certain direction, as long as it's not uh, you know anathema to something that all the others are doing, then you know, like in order to make sure the people are having a good time, you know, you need to to go in that direction. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm. I'm married, and I've I've you know lived with uh, with with women, and also you know with with my mother, obviously growing up as a child. So I have some understanding of of being a female. But I would be interested as a uh, I've never actually spoken with anybody about this before, but interested to see how my females played mm. uh, to a female, you know, in a game. I've only I've never actually had a uh, a female player who's been a, a regular only ever through one shots that I've run at uh, conventions, you know, yes. promoting Victoria and so forth. So that'd be something that uh, I'll have to investigate in the future. So how do you prepare for a game session? Well, I guess it mostly depends on whatever it is that I'm playing. Um, in something like Dungeons and Dragons, if it's done in a very traditional fashion where you're actually running a dungeon, I would prepare that in advance. Um, but in general, as a game master, I actually am I'm pretty seat of the pants. I don't really prepare a whole lot. I am very much a make-it-up-as-you-go-along sort of a guy. I, I find I, I have a tendency that if I give into it, I would over-prepare, where I would spend far too much time thinking about every contingency and trying to make sure everything works out perfectly. And I discovered over the years, through a combination of, of wisdom and laziness, that it was actually better to just go with the flow and see what happens and it requires you to be a little bit quick on your feet, um, and sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it won't work because you, you're you're just not into it. But when you are, which uh, yeah, over time you can sort of develop the habits necessary to be able to do that, it works out really well, and it's very low stress for me, and it lets the game go in places that I never imagined it could. It's it, I, because there's no you know um there's no net so to speak you just have to whatever happens happens and you have to deal with it and you have to be able to deal with it quickly now that having been said i i do prepare things like lists of names for characters you know if you run into an npc or whatever so i can quickly come up with a name for them so that are appropriate to whatever the game is that i'm playing and Little things like that. I like to have a collection of of maps of some sort of simple, basic places associated again with whatever kind of a game it is, so that if characters decide, oh, I'm going to go wander off and go into this building, I at least have a general sense of what it's like. But for the most part, I, I wing it. I don't prepare a lot. As I say, partly it's, it's laziness because I just don't have the time or the interest to 
pour over things for hours like I did when I was a teenager. But also, I think it works better for me in the end because I sometimes am surprised, which to me is that is the greatest part about being a game master when things that you didn't plan happen and you just you're as surprised as the players are. So that you're as much a participant in the game as you are a director of it or a facilitator of it. Right. Yeah, that's that's the other thing I was going to say, along with when your characters come to life, is when your story goes in a direction that you hadn't anticipated, but it just turns out so much better than uh, than you would have you could have thought, right? And that's, yes, uh, yes. And, and just going back to something that you said uh, previously, you know, you put together maps and lists of names and stuff like that, and that's that's something that I really endorse for uh, for for GMs to do. But uh, when it comes to um, you say you don't do a lot of preparation, part of that probably, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of that comes from being very familiar with the genre that you're that you're running things. And the more times the, or the more um, games that you've run, the more scenarios you've come across. So although you may not have any specific Preparation. Now, you've been in situations like this many times in the past, and if you're well read, particularly in the areas that you're running a game, a lot of these, um, like uh, I always get as is it Joseph Campbell? Yes. The mm-hmm. the hero with a thousand faces. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like these sort of common threads that you get with heroes, and also J.R. Tolkien, you know, talking about these sort of proto um, legends. You know, these ideas of storylines come come together, and if you're able to. Um, pick up one of those threads and also you have good knowledge of the the genre or the specific scenario that you're the sort of the specific area that you're running whether it be space or you know a, a quasi medieval type setting then it makes that much much easier I, I don't know if a uh, I don't know if a, a younger or perhaps a less well read person would be capable of of pulling that off is that something that you that uh, you think is um, the most valuable tool you have in your your GM's toolbox is that you are widely read and and knowledgeable in in the areas you're running games? Oh, that certainly helps. Um, Although um, I suspect, truthfully, it's just experience of playing games in general. Um, You become a lot less, at least I, I should say, become a lot less uncomfortable or anxious when doing these things. So I don't worry nearly so much about putting on a good show because I I know I've done these things before. When I was younger, or even nowadays, sometimes when I'm dealing with people that I've never played with before, there's a little bit of uh, stage fright and anxiety that comes. So... I tend to prepare a little bit more for people like that. Um, and that's the thing too. I've been very lucky in that over the course of my gaming uh, career, I've had a fairly stable group of people with whom I played. And so we know one another. I know what they like. I know the kinds of things they're likely to do. They still surprise me, of course, but I'm, I'm familiar with their general sort of way of, of role-playing and playing certain types of characters and so forth. So that makes it a lot easier to kind of anticipate. So even if I don't plan... I have the information at my in you know in, in mind that I need in order to be able to think on my feet. So it's a little bit of uh, cheating exactly, but I have some of this information already just from experience of having right. done it before. But when I was younger, I used to spend a lot of time preparing. But of course, I had a lot more time to do that. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's a combination of the two, isn't it? Yeah. So, do you or should GMs fudge roles? Um, depends, really. I mean, um, I have. Um, nowadays, well, it depends on what you're playing, I guess. Um, the things that we've been playing recently uh, with uh, D&D in particular, 
part of our doing it was specifically to get back to the you know old way of doing things so there wasn't a lot of fudging uh and we let things go where they went and i'm a firm believer in you know the oracular power of dice that sometimes having something bad happen at a time when it really shouldn't because the dice turn up and they're not favorable to you can make things really interesting because it takes you in a place you wouldn't have gone otherwise but but i'd be lying if i didn't say i'll fudge dice from time because sometimes you know it's sort of like oh well that'd be a shame if it turned out this way it really shouldn't uh you know the guy dies after all these wonderful things having happened everything went his way did everything right and he still died and then there are other times when it's like oh i'm tired let's get this combat over quickly you know but i I have but i try as a rule i try not to because i i I think if you're going to use dice, if you're going to use or some sort of a random element, which I think is very important to a role-playing game, you should let them play their part. Yeah. Um, but, I, I, of course, I fudge dice. I think everybody does. Yeah, and what I, it's one of the things I say in my book is that... that uh, that if, that and I, I tried to get this idea across to somebody that was new to role playing that for and however unlikely it may be the first book they picked up was a Victoria and and for if they're the first person in so to speak like you, you were with your group for basic Dungeons and Dragons unless they see somebody actually do it it's it's a very strange set of skills and a very strange idea to to get the game going so without having seen anybody do it it's, it's quite tricky to to know oh, how, yes. to do it, how to do it properly so one of the pieces of advice I, I give um as i say that you know you shouldn't be a you shouldn't be a slave uh to the dice and you know, unlike a a board game where you know if you're playing snakes and ladders you can't just change it so that you roll one one fewer or, or one more just so you hit that ladder you know it doesn't it doesn't work like that in a, in a board game but in a role-playing game you have to have a certain amount of flexibility because ultimately you know you're trying to tell an interesting story at the end of the day you want to tell an interesting story and although you can rob some of the feeling of satisfaction if you're blatantly fudging roles left right and center for the most part i think that players expect that the gm is in one way or another, whether it's with dice or with the story, they're fudging it somewhat in order to make sure that, that everybody's having a good time. But going back to the, the point you made about allowing the dice to play their part, I, I, I thoroughly agree with you there. That's part of that idea we talked about earlier on where you know the story goes in an unexpected direction. And I think that the more experienced you get, the more meaning you can get out of, you know, what could be a meaningless uh, a death or something like that exactly. that comes up from from the dice. And going along with with that is, how do you feel about um, games that, or not games necessarily, but how do you feel about interpretation of dice rolls that offer a null result? And the example that I that I give is that that the characters come up to a a door and there's a lock on it and the thief or the whoever it might happen to be gets their lock pick out and tries to pick the lock and they don't succeed and that's it like how do you feel about that type of resolution for for a dice roll the the that sort of goes hand in hand with this idea that that no dice rolls should be null results you know something should happen to the person tries to pick the lock or you know they're unsuccessful but in the process they they make a noise that attracts a guard or they you know their lock pick gets gets stuck and they in the process of trying to pull it out the they lose a hold on the lock and it bangs against the door or something like that and and it causes something to actually happen in the in the story 
Hmm. It's interesting. I never really thought about that before because I'm. Uh, there are plenty of times in recent games that I've played where characters have attempted to do something, failed, and there's really no consequences one way or the other. They simply can't achieve whatever it was they were trying to do. Um, what I found when that occurs is that it often, if it's something the characters, the players, I should say, really wish to do, they'll find other ways or they'll attempt to find other ways to achieve their goals through alternative means. And that in itself sort of, you know, it, it pushes them on and opens up other avenues. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to actually think of any occasions where a failure that didn't have any immediate consequence in terms of like, you know, as you say, like trying to open a door that's locked um, didn't ultimately result in having some further consequence down the line, they made us say, well, maybe there's a key somewhere and they began looking for it or whatever. And again, that's part of what I was talking about in terms of making things up as I go along, my sort of flexibility is that when those things occur and the char- the players, I should say, when they start to, to look about for alternatives, sometimes they put forward ideas. It's like, actually, that's a pretty good one. I, I wouldn't have thought of that myself. And you know, you you swipe those ideas and then start to use them and weave them into whatever it is you're doing. And the end result, again, it's different than you had originally intended. And I find it's often much more satisfying for everyone concerned because even though they fail, they may find some other means to succeed elsewhere through their own ingenuity. And I like to reward that if possible. It's It's yeah. very rare that I will sort of just stand there with my arms crossed and it's like, nope, that's it. Nothing you can do. Um, that's not a lot of fun. Uh, I know there are some, you know, or at least there are reputedly game masters who are like that, but I, I've never been that way. And I, I don't like things to be easy. I don't like to give things away to people. Um, but um, if they come up with good ideas on their own to circumvent the results of what happened on the dice, I have no problem with, with running with that. Right, right. So is there anywhere that you won't go as a GM, like you just won't play this type of game or that type of game, or you won't play out this or that type of scenario? Um, the chap that wrote Sorcerer, um, forgotten his first name now, the chap Edwards, um, who, who wrote Sorcerer. Um, Ron Edwards. Ron Edwards, that's Ron, right. Uh, he was. He has this idea of uh, veils, and I forget the word that goes with it, but is you know this idea of you know the, the lovers tumble into bed, and then they wake up the next morning with hair dishevelled and and uh, you know and, and go about their go go on their way. Um, there's no there's no need for or, or you, there's no uh, game purpose of, of playing out sex you know just like mm-hmm. that people don't generally when they're playing a, you know quasi-medieval they don't talk about digging a latrine or finding somewhere to use the bathroom in the, in the dungeon you know that that yes. type of thing is there is there anything along those lines that you think is unnecessary as a gm for you to portray um no i never um i i would not as a blanket rule say there's not there's you know, any particular thing I wouldn't uh, do. Um, But um, I, I I guess, I mean, I don't, uh, I like to, in general, I suppose, I mean, again, this is a habit I suppose I picked up from a long time ago. You know, my, uh, my games are definitely, you know, PG or PG 13 rated sorts of things. We don't tend to get too heavily involved in anything that's too lurid or, uh, or violent or so forth. But, I can imagine circumstances where they might be. I mean, if that was the point of the game, um, I don't see any problem with that in particular, if that's what people are interested in, in playing. But 
you know, we the things that we tend to play that I have tended to play over the years are they're pretty sedate for the most part. Uh, so consequently, we don't really have much opportunity to sort of push any kinds of boundaries or whatever. Right. But I, I don't, I, I can't say that there's anything off the top of my head that would, uh, I would be opposed to in principle. In practice, my games are pretty, you know, stayed, I guess, compared to uh, to some, but maybe that's not a very interesting answer. No, no it's a, that, that's fine, because I, I think that that's probably accurate for... Um probably accurate for the sort of games that I've run as well. It's not a conscious decision, but I would say that, that some of the movies that I like the best are, uh, are much more lurid than the games that I would, would mm. write, certainly in terms of like, uh, like you know, Silence of the Lambs and, and that, that, sort of, that sort of film. And I wonder whether that's because you're not able to you know, faithfully portray you know, that sort of intensity within a role-playing game or whether that's just a case of, you know, you just have to be so much better to be able to, to carry off that, that feeling. Do you think that a lack of a visual element uh, to a degree hamstrings your ability to um, believably um, have those sorts of scenes in your story? Uh, to some extent. I mean, I, I would say I know that um, it is, there are some emotions that are much harder to elicit without a visual component. I know, for example, fear it's difficult to impart that properly in a role-playing environment, you know, because unless you're going to do all sorts of atmospheric lighting and make noises and things, it's harder to put people in that kind of paranoid fear that you can get in say a horror movie. Um, just as one example of things. Um, but it's not just, I don't think, I mean, visual is important. It's not just that, but I think one of the other things is too, that it goes back to that, uh, that distance between the player and the character to some extent, because yes. it, it, unless a person is very strongly identifying with their character, and, and I know there are people who can do this, but I've never really uh, seen it much up close and personal anyway, there's always going to be that sense of, well, no matter how bad things are, it's not really me, right? This is just the game. And so it makes it harder for some of those very intense emotional kinds of things to, um, to take hold of the player. Because you always, you know, it's, it's, it's happening to this character, yes. not to the player. At the same time, of course, people do become, even, even with that distance, they still do become attached to their characters. So that if you put that character in a circumstance where it is quite possible that they could be killed or harmed in some permanent fashion, and they know from past experience that you're the kind of game master where you would or could do such a thing, yes. you, can, you can still elicit some emotion from people. It's just, it's a different thing. Yes. It's role-playing, I don't know, one of my firm beliefs, of course, is that role-playing is, is its own medium, right? Yes. And that trying to... You, movies, books... TV shows, things like that. They're all great inspirations for role-playing, but you can't really translate those things into this medium because it's, it's different. It's its, its own thing. Um, so you have, to, you have to have different tricks and different ways of doing things than you would if you were watching a movie or reading a book. Right. So along those lines, what's, your most, what's the most inspiring film and or TV show that you've uh, for, in a role-playing sense? You know, I, I was thinking about, I was trying to come up with a good answer. And unfortunately, I, I, I have a very hard time coming up with a <sighs> movies and uh, TV shows. They, for role, I, I, I honestly can't think of anything that really truly inspires me in that regard. I'm much more inspired by books. Oh, okay. Well, what books then? 
Um, well, for example, um, uh, Thousand Suns, my science fiction game, when I was running it and uh, writing it, I'm very, very inspired by the writer H. Beam Piper. Right. Uh, he wrote in the 50s and 60s um, because one of the things that's great about his stories is that they have this great sense of, of history. Um, they're all part of a larger sort of story of, of humanity going out into space and colonizing and eventually founding these great empires and rise and fall of civilizations. I find that very, very inspiring. And as a backdrop for science fiction, it gives me all sorts of great ideas. Um, movies and TV shows, the reasons why I don't tend to be as inspired by them, partially because they, um, I guess it, it, they're, they're, they're these visual sorts of things. And you know, they give you, give me, I, I see things, but I don't know. I'm not a visual person, I guess, when I think of ideas. I, I like the abstract. Um, so I find it much easier to read something on a page and get an idea from it. Um, but, again, not sure how interesting an answer that actually is. Um, oh, no, that's, that's absolutely fine. I mean, people, as you said, role-playing is... Uh, it's arguably is its its own uh, medium, and because you're drawing on so many of these different skills, which are represented in part, but never in whole, uh, across the other types of media that people interact with. You know, it's hard to uh, to find something that is inspiring in that that exact way. So, who's your favourite villain, and why? Hmm. Let me see. I, uh, as villains go, um, I tend to. Uh, be divided. There are two types that I tend to like a great deal. I like the sort of Professor Moriarty type, the sort of, you know, spider sitting in the center of his web, the guy who's pulling the strings from behind the scenes and in control of it all, but stays aloof from everything. I find that incredibly fascinating as villains. So someone like Moriarty or sort of like the Emperor from the Star Wars movies. Um, But then I also like misguided villains, people who think they're good, but um, are not, like, say, Magneto from the X-Men comics. Um, who, and they may even be pursuing noble ends, but through ignoble means. I find those very fascinating. So those are the kinds of villains I like. Um, so I named a few. I'm not sure I have a single favorite villain, but those are the ones that I like a great deal. Yeah, the, this idea of the complex villain is definitely something that, uh, that people tend to identify with. Um, and in my, my book, um, you may not necessarily agree with this, but my contention is that for the most part, um, your villain is your plot. You know, it's it's the things that they're doing that that will really drive the story. And the characters, at least initially, are only reacting to what they're doing, and then ultimately they become you know actively involved in, in trying to drive the story themselves. But without a really strong villain at the centre of your your story, uh, it's hard to get the players to to care about what's happening, you know, having that actual personality that they're, they're in opposition to. Um, and so I, I, one of the things that I advocate is, you know, when you're putting a game together, have an idea about, you know, how you want your game to end. And then once you've got an idea about how you want your game to end, then, you know, you've got a direction that you can go in. But then the next thing that you should do is take a look at who you want your villain to be and start thinking about, you know, what, uh, what their goals are, how that relates to, you know, how you want your, your story to end, and also um, taking a look at their backstory and taking a look at the things that, that motivate them and then seeing how those motivations and those, you know, those ideas then mesh with this path that the players are going to follow 
are going to follow to the to the end. How do you feel about villains um, as a centerpiece for uh, for a plot? I mean, uh, that's assuming you're not running a story where perhaps there's a, there's a black hole and you have to right, find somewhere to... right. Well, you see, that's that's what I was going to say is that I guess it depends on whether or not you're running a kind of adventure or session where the the uh, the conflict relates to a villain, but uh, no, memorable villains are very important. I mean, you you need them. Well, you need them, but they certainly help a great deal. People, uh, players, always enjoy having someone uh, uh, interesting that they can uh, fight against. Uh, and the more interesting the character, the uh, more interesting the villain, the more fun they're likely to have. So I, I don't have any real disagreement with that. So, if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would be what would it be? And it doesn't necessarily mean like because anybody can actually play any role-playing game just at the drop of hat. But if you could actually become a player, uh, sorry, become a character or a real person within a particular setting or for a particular role-playing game, what who, who or what would that be? Oh, um, even though I hate playing them myself as a player, I if I could, I would be very happy to be a wizard. Hmm. As they have magical powers of some sort. I mean, I'd I'd settle for some kind of uh, you know, you know, superhero or uh, uh, psychic or something like that. You know, mind control powers. That's uh, that would be something I'd like to have. Some to be able to do that goes back, yes, to my my villain, you know, type the sort of manipulator who controls people from behind the scenes. But definitely a, a wizard, magic user, sorcerer, or something like that. No question about it. Yeah, I'm I'm almost at the opposite. Not quite the opposite end of the of the, of the spectrum on that, but my uh, and I, I mentioned it I think in episode two. But if I could be somebody, I would be a Fox Mulder type character in a Project Twilight game. I like the idea of magic and the supernatural existing, but I really like the idea of being somebody who's who's fighting against. I'm not opposed to to magic. Mm-hmm. And one of my most my, one of my favorite games, or well, my favorite game probably, was a Mage: The Ascension game where I played a Dream Speaker and spent a lot of time in the Umbra and doing things with spirits and so forth. But if I was actually going to be something, it would be you know uh, somebody fighting against the supernatural. So so yeah, it's, I think uh, people like the idea of being able to do to do magic, and I'm, I'm perhaps in a minority in, in wanting to not do magic, but uh, but yeah, that seems to be something that people readily identify with, just be great to be able to move things oh, sure. and, and, and be wizards and stuff. So, do you have any dice superstitions? Um, not really. I don't think I have any. Um, we, uh, I know, you know, players will often, at the table, will, uh, well, fell on the floor, it doesn't count. Uh, or that dice is cocked, so that doesn't count. But I don't actually really have any dice superstitions, um, strangely. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one there. Until a couple of weeks ago, I didn't actually know that any people that I played with had dice superstitions, but it, but it turns out apparently that they that they do. So, yeah, I've never actually identified with, with dice superstitions. I'll just use just use whatever dice are, are to hand. And, and, uh, and, and, exactly. Yeah, and, at, and at a convention, I touched a girl's dice, and, and she decided that they were cursed and had to put them away afterwards. So I learned then that people do have some very serious well, dice superstitions, and I keep my oh, hands to myself they, now. But. They, they do. Well, gamers are very attached their dice and so it doesn't surprise me they'd have them i had a player in a game several years ago who um he was convinced he had dice that were cursed um it was a D game and he rather than taking a new a new die he continued to use the the one that he believed to be cursed feeling that he had to sort of you know somehow 
give it the good mojo or whatever. And he kept rolling, and it was it was a twenty sided die, so he was always trying to roll to to hit things with it in D anD D, and he kept failing utterly. Right. And it took him months before he realized, or someone pointed out to him, that it was an old percentile die, number right. zero to nine <laughs> twice. So he could never roll higher than ten because that's all that it was. It didn't go above ten. Brilliant. <laughs> You're like one and, of those merp dice, right? <laughs> so yeah, and it just it's a, it was a funny thing. But he was convinced they were cursed. But it was his job. He had to, to break the curse by rolling. And he, it must have been months before someone said, you know, that's actually a percentile die. Yeah, I don't know if I would have seen I might have let him go on a bit longer because that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Um, so what's your role-playing elevator pitch um, and your go-to example? What do you mean? So, for example, you somebody you say, you know, what are you, what are you going to do this evening? And oh, I'm going to go and do role-playing. And they say, what's that? Oh, um, hmm. It's interesting because most people, of course, have some basic idea of what role playing is. Um, but lately, whenever it has come up and I've tried to sort of explain it to people, I said it's kind of like structured improv. Right. Where, you know, everybody plays, takes on a role, and you're put into this situation and you react to it by talking to one another. Um, you know, it's that kind of a thing. It's, uh, and everyone knows, you know, what improv theater is like, or at least they know what improv comedy is like because they've seen that. It's a very popular thing for people to watch. Uh, and they're like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Uh, and you just explain from there and sort of refine the explanation of it. Say, well, it's not quite like, because, you know, there are dice that are rolled in order to determine how things turn out. Um, but they get the idea when you talk about improvisational theater. Right. Yeah, they, they, whose line is it anyway type uh, exactly. idea. Exactly, exactly, yes. Right, and and my last uh, uh, guest, uh, what he said was um, that it's, it's like improv, but he had a really good uh, way to explain the dice, and it was that it's a cooperative, it's cooperative storytelling, but it involves rolling dice to help decide when not everybody can agree. Hmm. And, and I thought that was a, a encapsulated the idea of the dice really well because even though that doesn't exactly capture it for somebody unfamiliar with role playing, you know, if yes. you give them this idea of you know telling a story together and uh, and people having input, then how do you decide whose whose input is going to be what actually happens? And, and I thought that was quite uh, quite an elegant way to describe the function of dice. But um, I'm. I'm actually quite interested to know where you're going to fall on this particular question because I I, I by the end of the interview, usually I have an idea about what somebody's going to say, but in this case, I, I must confess I'm completely, uh, I've, I've got no idea what you're going to say. So, totaling 100, quantify system, GM, and players. Oh, you mean give each one of them a score out of 100, or no, no, divide the points? You must divide the points between the three. Gee. Um, I hate to make a cop-out answer, but I think it's equally all of them. So, 33 and a third? repeating uh, for all yeah. uh, for all of them um, because I, I definitely am of the opinion that uh, I mean, if I were to give a slight edge to anything I actually think GM's a little more important just because many a game has failed because the GM has not adequately interested the players um, but at the same time you know if you don't have players who are engaged uh, and then use their engagement to make a fun game for the game master it's not enjoyable either um, and I do I, I think 
rules are important to a game. They also provide a sort of a structure. Uh, and they make it clear to people you know, what the game is about and how it's meant to be played. Um, I mean, certainly you can... You can get around bad rules, and everyone does. I mean, there are things that you don't like or don't really suit you. But I'm not one of these people that wants to totally dismiss the value of, of rules because I think playing, say, Dungeons and Dragons, its rules very strongly influence the kind of fantasy you're playing, as opposed to if you were going to be playing, you know, RuneQuest, for example, which has a very different rule structure, um, and it naturally results in you're playing a different kind of a game. It affects the way you play. So I'm going to go with the cop-out answer and say that they're all equally important. So one-third for each. Fair enough. Well, thank you very much, James, for taking the time to talk with us here. I'd be really interested in getting you back on the, the show another time, perhaps with a more of a game designer bent, but uh, it's been informative and uh, entertaining. Ladies and gentlemen, James Malajewski. Okay, thanks for having me. That's it for episode 12 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments relating to the episode, daniel at hazardgaming.com. I also want to give an extra special thanks to James for his patience during that interview. My three-year-old was coming in and out for most of the time we were recording, with requests ranging from the very reasonable to the quite bizarre, such as the way with three-year-olds. A quick update to last week's show. Tim Brennan was able to produce his character Dirty Nell using the Hazard system, and you can find this character as well as his review of Victoria at timbrannan.blogspot.com. Both the character and the review can be found in the April the 25th post. First edition, first printings of the book can be purchased from victoriarpg.com, as can the PDF. A print-on-demand version of the book can be purchased from lulu.com, do a search for Victoria and All My Name, and the PDF can be purchased from drivethroughrpg.com. Next week's show marks the beginning of a series of three interviews with the stars of I Had It With My Axe. First up is Zach Smith, writer of Vornheim and DM from that series. Next is Satine Phoenix, followed by Mandy Morbid. So until next week, keep talking the walk.